Welcome to the Witness and Persecution Podcast with Nick and Ruth Ripkin, where we equip you with biblical principles and practices from believers in persecution to help you cross the street and cross the oceans with the love of Jesus. I'm your host, Anthony Ball, and today we have Nick on our show. Nick, how are we doing today? We're doing fine. You know, sometimes, Anthony, I feel strange trying to put a smile on my face when we're going to talk about persecution. But when I think about the deeper stuff of it and and knowing how victorious our brothers and sisters are, it does give me a lot of joy. But it's a it's a deep subject. Mm, I love that. I, I, I love the relationship between joy and victory. And maybe that's, it's a smile of victory, really, is what you get to have. Yeah, and I think to be my own segue a little bit today, I, I, and the thought just came to my mind again. We've talked about it before that the the greatest persecution on earth is to have no access to Jesus. And um, I think uh, Somalia was the essence of that for 2000 years. They had no access to Jesus. Hmm. Well, you know, that's what we titled this, this podcast witness and persecution, because we, we get to see the, there's so many inverse relationships between witnessing and persecution, both when we witness, it causes persecution uh, for the name of Christ, but also, as you said in many shows before, in many episodes, when we don't witness, we are identifying with the persecutors. And so you're exactly, exactly right that there's such an amazing relationship between those two words. What was that word you use? Inverse? I think inverse. I'm from Oklahoma, so that's a pretty big word for me. So I don't between What's, Oklahoma what, and Kentucky, I don't know is, is that, where that came from. What is that? The opposite of reverse or or what is I that? I think it's the opposite of outverse, right? Outburst. Well, <laughs> it sounded good in the context of the sentence. So, yeah. Well, uh, I, very rarely can I string together a sentence like that, so don't get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love I love that that segue of joy and the uh, smile of victory and, and smiling with the joy that we have. Uh, in victory and that that resurrection power today, I know you are going to share a little bit with us today about being in, in famine and war zones and how we respond to that, what that does to our soul, and how we uh, how we interact and how we accept that message and what it does to our hearts. Why don't you share a little bit with us on this episode about um, being in Somalia, seeing and experiencing those things at a very deep and raw level, and and how how do you come out of that? And what, what is God doing with that from this story? Well, I had spoken to you as we were just uh, chatting before the podcast that it really does trouble me at the deepest parts of my being that the history of missions is not that um, it's not that moral. It's not that clean that uh, when you look uh, even back in. Uh, the 1800s, and in, in, in the book I'm reading, a historical fiction I'm reading right now, how how uh, the missionaries went from England with government personnel and and the and the might of the British military that was global at that time, and in my lifetime, uh, well, uh, almost prior to my lifetime in. Uh, 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 missionaries followed uh, uh, the colonialists uh, all over the world, and 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 they were seen as being in in partnership with uh, uh, their, their colonial conquerors. And 
and in my lifetime, uh, especially with uh, one of the major religions in the world, uh, missionaries have increased their presence by thousands of percent by following the military uh, into places that, that, uh, that, and I just think that's backwards. I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, uh, we should have been the first in. Uh, and and, and I, I wanted to say in war zones and things like that, we're the last ones out. Hmm. But in terms of church planting and churches, of, in terms of like the Apostle Paul and making Jesus known, we, we should be uh, the first in and we should be the first to leave. We should not stay and, and set up a kingdom and build buildings and 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 amass riches. Uh, we we should go to the next place and the next place and the next place. We're we're not the pastors and the teachers of the world. We're the evangelists and the church planters of the world. But I can't tell you that I had this stuff worked out when the Holy Spirit. Uh, convinced uh, Ruth and I to move again. Uh, we moved those boys 38 times, but I don't know. This was in the midst of uh, maybe the 10th move, something like that. And and we're we're trying to get into Somalia, and everybody that were people of faith got kicked out or had to leave during the famine and civil war. And, and so uh, we're some of the first ones back in. And because what we're trying to do fits hand in glove with what the United Nations, uh, their charter is a Red Cross International. And uh, this is long before there was any military uh, movement on the U.S. government part to have a coalition coming uh, in there. And so uh, I think I, I would remind you, I, I first would go in there with uh, a select 20 or 30 with the United Nations. And it's so blooming hot uh, in there in the summertime, maybe 90% of the seven years that, that when I stayed in, in Somalia, I slept on the roof of the houses, try to catch some breeze and keep oh the mosquitoes off. Cause there's not, there's no electricity. We don't even have a fan. And, and most of these windows are so salt and crusted. You can't keep them open. And, uh, and, and so it, it's a hot place. And, and, uh, that first trip in there with the United Nations, I'm up on the roof and about, uh, nine o'clock at night, it's after, it's well after dark. One of the guard gates come up and, uh, and he, uh, comes up and he says, uh, you have a visitor asking for you by name. And I said, well, uh, that's not possible. No one knows I'm here. And he said, are you Nick Ripkin? And I said, yes. And he said, there's a Somali man asking for you by name at the gate. And so I went down and, and uh, I asked him to stand where he could see me because I know this is a tough place, especially at night. And there was a guy that uh, standing there who were uh, years later was to be martyred while I was in Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. But he introduced himself to me. And he said, I was with some believers uh, uh, last night and we were praying and the Holy Spirit uh, told us that you were coming in here and I've come uh, to introduce myself to you. And he gave me his name and he said, I just want you to know so that as you go back to Nairobi, you can let uh, some of those others that had to leave 
that we're still alive and, and praying that they'll come back. And I mean, for, for him to ask for me by name through the power of the Holy Spirit, I just knew, my goodness, uh, biblically, uh, this is f- very familiar territory, but coming from the background of a traditional missionary and a pastor teacher, uh, this is very unfamiliar territory. And so um, it was just sort of, uh, you know, uh, a model of something that was to come. And so uh, working hand in glove with uh, international organizations uh, most of them are funders. They're not implementers. And they're looking for folks like us that can tell them both what's wrong, uh, where they can work, what needs to be funded, what the ABCs and XYZs might be. And so before the military came in, I could walk anywhere in Mogadishu. I had guards with me. I might have another uh, Westerner with me. But when I got into Mogadishu, there were only four of us that I know of that were in there at that time. And, mm. and so I, I'm, I, I'm driving uh, with guards and, and, and a lot of places I'm, I'm walking and, and I'm trying to get a feel for what's going on throughout uh, uh, a Mogadishu. And I'm learning about the six major clans and I'm learning about the sub clans and, and, and what negotiates your marriage and, and the group that negotiates uh, your funeral and if you kill someone, they have what they call is the DIA, D-I-Y-A in English, uh, uh, DIA paying group that is your advocate on the ground. So like if you kill someone, whether it's deliberate or accidental, you 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 get with the other person's DIA paying group and, 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 and cause of a death, uh, it can be a life for a life, you know, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It can be a payment of money for that one who was killed, or if it was an accident and these two DIA groups are, are, are getting along well, they can just say, uh, you know, it's just forgiven. Uh, there's mm-hmm. all, but, you know, it's, it's a big deal, and that's the group that you're always working through. And, and, and I'm out there uh, in a, a place called Afgoy, and, and I'm introduced to this one sub-clan, and I, and I asked them, because they all have their own specialties. And the number one, the most dangerous animal in all of Africa is a crocodile. That's because they get in the mud and the, mostly the ladies and the young girls have to go for buckets of water. Usually they have to walk three to five miles to get a dirty bucket of water that is used for mm-hmm. uh, drinking, the washing of your body, washing of your clothes, cooking, any gardening that you might do. And and so those crocodiles laying and hidden in that mud, uh, they take a lot of women and children uh, about the thousands each year in rural Africa. And, 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 and a crocodile not to be too too gross or anything. They, they don't like their, uh, you know, whether it's a deer or an antelope or whatever they take, they don't do their meat fresh. They take it under the water. They take it into its nest and they leave it there uh, for some days and weeks. And this mm-hmm. sub-clan, because unless they can be buried whole, uh, Muslims uh, generally believe that they cannot stand before Allah and have a chance to go to paradise. And so this group 
they go and dive into the river, into the crocodile's nest, and some of them uh, take sharpened sticks and fight the crocodile off while they go and retrieve the body so it can have a proper burial. Well, they don't teach you that in seminary. Uh, it's not in a lot of books. But those are the kinds of things you're learning, and it helps you also to know how to say, can I pray for you? And and and, and they've never experienced prayers outside of a, a mosque or, or, or on a Friday or something like that. And and, and so praying for, for that one who has been taken and, and, and those who are going down trying to retrieve and bring peace to the family and, the, and to the extended family. And, and so I, uh, I'm also looking to see if there's any medical help, anybody growing food whatsoever. And in all of Somalia at that time, I found the only hospital in existence. And the only doctor in the country, every, all the others, 99.9% have fled, especially all the men. There's one lady doctor uh, in her late 30s, trained in Russia, that stayed uh, to help her people. And she's trying to rehabilitate a hospital about 30 miles, uh, it's, uh, it's about 70 miles from Mogadishu to the west and a place that we ended up doing a lot of work. And that place has, the hospital has very little roof on it, has no windows, the doors are missing. Anybody that's there as a burn victim, a gunshot, it's mostly for children. It was considered a children's hospital. All these children are sitting on beds. Mm. They don't have a sheet. They don't have a blanket. Uh, some of those have, are rawhide springs. I saw a couple of the beds that were metal springs and, and that's the only hospital in existence. And, and, uh, Hala, uh, this Russian doctor was taking me through and, and it, I didn't have to ask her what she needed. They, they didn't have a band aid and, and they're, wow. they're doing, they're doing mm. surgery. Uh, they're doing, uh, uh, setting bones. We're sewing kids up, uh, and, and we, we don't have a Band-Aid. We don't have an aspirin. And and she's showing me through the hospital. And mm. and I turned around. And he, you know, uh, I, I uh, up until then, Somali, what I had seen was Somalia and Somali people. In other words, I, I never saw, when I, when I saw starving people, I saw hundreds of them, if not thousands, thousands no. of them. When I saw women that had been molested, there were whole groups of them. When I went to a place and, and, and old people were dying and were burying 20 children a day, it's all this mass of, 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 of starving, uh, beaten, abused, and, 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 and torn up by Civil War people. And, and, and so when I walked into this hospital, it had like, four or five different sections, one for burn victims and one for malnutrition, one for broken bones, one for some minor surgeries or whatever they could do. I mean, I helped taking, uh, I've taken an appendix out. Uh, helping. I did not know uh, that. Uh, yes. With a, with a, a, a surgeon who just happened to be there and we take xylocaine that they usually do to, 
put stitches in you or or Novocaine. It's like Novocaine when they want to fix a, a a cavity or pull a tooth. And we've taken that Xylocaine, mm. and this kid was going to die of a busted appendix. And we go down one layer, and 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 the doctor has me put in more Xylocaine, and we go down another layer, and he cuts some more. We keep doing that until we get down to that appendix, and he takes it out, and then he sews the kid up. And the kids gets up and walks away and goes home. Unbelievable. It, it, you just do what you can do. And, and, and you're thankful for a day when you can do something uh, to help mm. a situation. And so I'm walking through this hospital and I, I, I turn around and Hala is talking to me, but sitting on a, a, a metal springs in the corner is, is this, could be lovely little Somali girl sitting on the springs of this bed with her belly as swollen as it could be, uh, pencil thin ankles and, and, and wrist and, and just uh, her eyes wasn't focused. She just was hollowed eyes. And, and, and I just stopped and looked at her. She was the epitome of everything that was Somalia in those days. And, I asked Hala about her and they said, well, her, as far as we know, she, she, we, we just found her on the side of the road and, uh, uh, she's three years of age and she weighs, uh, uh, six kilograms. She weighs about 13 wow. pounds and she's just staring in space and, and just sitting there and uh, most emaciated and, and all of a sudden these masses of, of, of Somalis, are reduced to this one girl, and 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 mm. and maybe for one of the first times, I see a person as a person, not not as mm. women corporate raped, not as old men corporate dying or dead, not as children and family starving as you know units by thousands. I just saw this one girl. See, Anthony, I developed mm. survival skills. I can't tell you how. Yeah. I think some of it was from the poverty of, of Malawi, and some of it was from the hatred and the apartheid of South Africa for those eight years. But when I, every time, every day when I saw things that, that was not capable of being handled in and retain your humanity, I would picture having all these closets in my mind and I would take that event or that person, that scene, and I would put it in that closet and I'd lock the door. And then I would go on mm, to the yeah. next thing and the next thing. Now, I, God has made me in such a way, I can't take any credit with it, but I knew that if I left it in that closet very long, it was going to become a big cancer. So whenever I, I came out and, and we told the boys everything that dad could tell them or mom could tell them by the notes that I'd taken and later on by the uh, uh, photographs that I'd taken. And, and, but at, I would set up in bed with Ruth to three or four o'clock in the morning and telling her things that I just had to get out of that, that I could not bear. It would become a cancer if I didn't tell her. And usually the second day out, I would meet with five or six guys that were my best friends that would hold me accountable. So 
how much time I was gone and how I was caring for my family, but also so supportive of what we were doing as a family. And, and, and every time, uh, at least once a year, we would bring a counselor out and set for days at a time. Uh, at first, it was just Ruth and myself and our boys. And then later on, each team member would do that. And, and, uh, and so I would find the help that I need to make sure that these scars could heal and, and that they just wouldn't fester and, and that if I didn't self-care, then I wasn't going to be much use to Somalia. And so I, I was doing it all right, and I was unpacking all these massive of things, but all of a sudden it became a nation of one person, this little girl. And it was just like she was the epitome of everything that was Somalia. And I, I can't tell you what prompted me to do it or why I did it, because I hadn't done it before. But I, I, I walked over across the room to her and I walked up to her and, and I, I took my finger, my index finger, and I just rubbed it up and down her face. And suddenly her eyes focused on me, Anthony. And she mm. got this big, beautiful smile on her face. And I, I, I fell back away from her. It, it was like my, my soul had burst. And, and I thought, I just thought, my God, where, where did that smile come from? It didn't mm. belong in that place. It didn't belong in that hospital, and it didn't belong in, in the soul of that emaciated, three-year-old, brutalized little body of a girl uh, sitting on that uh, bed with a little cloth in her lap and, and, and three years old weighing, you know, 13 pounds. And, 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 and I just looked at her, and everything in my soul just screamed, uh, this this baby, this three-year-old, uh, she's going to go home with me. I'm mm. she's this one lives. I'm taking her to Nairobi, and, and I know I can do this because uh, uh, I've done so many favors for the United Nations, for the U.S. government personnel, for the Red Cross, and 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 she has no family, she has no hope, and I know the people that will help her. Let me put her on a plane and take her back to Nairobi, getting her through customs, immigration. That's not going to be a problem. It'll take a couple years to work with you, mm. uh, the immigration. But this girl lives. Uh, she goes home with me. I can't save this country, but this girl uh, is going to go home and meet Aunt Ruth and, and our three sons. And, and, and Hala uh, took that time from another room to yell at me that uh, some kid had been brought in from a truck wreck and he, we had to set his mm. arm and we had to set his leg and I went out to the pickup truck, uh, the four-wheel drive that we had and picked up some stiff bags that we had uh, left some corn in some other places, some hard corn that they would beat and somehow eat. And, and, uh, and I took those in and we used those and made splints out of them. Uh, that, that stiff paper, uh, from the, from the corn or the wheat, whatever it was we had. I don't remember. I could have dumped it out and found some string in the back of the truck. And, and so we're, 
setting this little boy's bones and, and, uh, and, 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 and wrapping them in this bag and, and a stiff bag and, and tying string around them and, and then letting his family take him home. And we, we have no aspirin. We have nothing to give him and just pray that, uh, you know, over mm-hmm. him that, that he can heal. And, and I go back in and, and the, the bed that this little girl that, that was in and, and, and I'd already, uh, told Hala that I'm taking her with me. And she said, I, I wish you could take all of them. And, uh, and so she mm-hmm. wasn't there. So I thought, well, maybe they took her to wash her or, or to try to get some gruel in her or something or other. And, and so Hala said, Dr. Hala said, I'll go and, and find her for you. And, and she came back and, and she sat down on a chair and she just looked at the ground for the few minutes and she looked up at me and, and uh, uh, tears were going down her face. She said, while you were helping me in the other room, she died. Mm. And they're, they've already taken her to bury her. She said, you can't mm. even say goodbye to her. And um, that's one face I still see. And that's one story that I just feel like if I could have got there a day earlier and carried her back to Mogadishu, I knew of some nurses there. We could have got some IVs into her and and they could have started feeding her a little bit of this stuff that we bring in called Unimix. And, and, and slowly, I mean, it would take us a month to get her strong enough to, to even carry her out to, to Ruth and the boys. But, uh, uh, I just, um, I just, I just see this little wasted body and I still see that as I rubbed her, you know, on her cheek, that this beautific smile just came from somewhere in the depths of that starved little body. And to me, it was again an indictment that those of us who call ourselves Christians and call ourselves a church, that for 2,000 years, we haven't got there. I, I mean, yeah. where, where, where you will go to church on Sunday, we'll probably have more people sitting under the word of God than in the history of the Somali people have learned the Somali language well enough that when they ask us spiritual questions, can both understand the question and share with them about the love of the crucified Christ and the power of his resurrection. We just Mm -hmm. never got there and we still haven't. And that's the story of Somalia. That's Mm -hmm. the story of most of Afghanistan. That's the story of most of Pakistan, uh, it's the story of the uh, three, almost three billion people on the planet today that don't have a, a scrap, uh, one one verse of the Bible. They don't have uh, clean mm. drinking water. Uh, they, they, there's not a single worker like us in their midst. There's not a single spiritual biblical song that they can sing. We know of no uh, bodies of Christ of any form, uh, any format in, in, in among this almost 3 billion people. And we're still 
we're still going to be the last in and the first to leave. And I wonder when things are going to change. And my prayers for your generation mm. and the generation that comes up behind them, that finally we will have an entire generation that takes the words of Jesus seriously, that when he said go, we actually go. Mm. And, and, and when he says stay, we stay. When he says it's time that you can hand it over uh, to a second wave or, uh, you know, there are those of us who are made for uh, mm. crisis and for civil war and for famine. And we're made for that acute crisis. And there are others that are made uh, for the crisis when it becomes just a, a, a severe crisis, an everyday crisis. And, 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 and they can be the second wave of people. And then as things settle down, even a, a different kind of person can come in. But when are we going to hear and take seriously the command to go into all the world so we get to these mm. places and we don't have to go in thousands of years too late and, 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 and just clean up the mess mm. that Satan has wrought upon the people that he has control over. Mm. Now, I know that that's not my happy thought, but sometimes, sometimes our congregation and our ministry is reduced to one person. Now, I know that in terms of witness and seeing the kingdom of God planted and, and, and going from place to place quickly, like in the book of Acts, it's going to go from house to house and, and family to family. But when you're looking at the civil war and famines, uh, we've got to feed the masters, masses. We've got to do, uh, you know, like mass units. We've got to do mobile medical clinics. But sometimes you're going to have to stop and look people in the face and ask them their name and listen to mm. their story and say, for you, your story changes today because of what I'm going to do in your life. And I'm not doing wow. it only for you. I cannot, but do it for me. And if I don't do it, then that part of my humanity dies. And that closet in which I have locked this event, I don't know how it cannot become a cancer because there's no good ending for it. And so I think Ruth and I, uh, 35 years down the road, are, 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 are as healthy as we can be uh, emotionally and spiritually, physically, that's, that's a... That's a different story because we've been in a lot of tough places for a lot of miles where uh, people ask us what kind of roads there are. I say usually traveling on the roads is worse than traveling where there is no road. Uh, and so we've had some <laughs> rugged and tough miles out there. But when, when are we going to hear and when are we going to obey and when are we going to take that 95 cents out of every dollar that Christians give for salaries and buildings and programs for those who are already in the kingdom of God 
and get there before that three-year-old that weighs 12, 13 pounds dies of starvation. Mm. I looked her in the eye and I fell in love with her in a moment. I'm going to have to look God in the eye and I'm either going to hear uh, one of my uh, heroes of the faith. He's, uh, He's the second book I read after the Bible, when I became a Christian at 18 years of age, was by Brother Andrew, God's smuggler. And at 90-some years of age, uh, Brother Andrew died a couple days ago. Smuggled Bibles in Eastern Europe. Uh, Did the unreached peoples thing when nobody else knew what it was like and advocated for the uh, church and the people in persecution when uh, that was not in anybody's vocabulary and I've sat with him for dozens of times and sometimes weeks at a time and I've traveled with him and, and, and he's been just a, a man of God. And, and sometimes, sometimes we've got to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And we've got to, mm-hmm. uh, to take that love uh, that is absent in, in most mm-hmm. of the world. And, and I just, um, uh, if there's one thing that I, if there is a scar that has not totally healed out of all the injuries that one has to one's psyche and soul by working in war zones and famines for so long, it'll be the little girl that I wanted to take home and couldn't. Mm. And if there's one thing I would change is that I would have her having grown up with our three kids as the sister they never got to have. Mm. That broke my heart. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. And I, I'm reminded of actually the, the documentary film, the insanity of God. I remember in, uh, when you were, you're in the film and you're sharing about, at times in Somalia and going in and out and seeing this devastation. And um, unfortunately, one of many stories like this of just seeing people uh, at their, at, at the worst, at the, at the most broken that you can possibly find humanity. And I remember you saying in the film, you know, you would see that. And then a, a few days or a few weeks later, you would come back home and you would see your family happy and healthy. And, and, and you said, I don't know what to, to do with that. I imagine that is a a prime example. What do you what do you do when you just you have this devastation right up front and you see people at their their most absolutely broken that they can be in life? You know, Nick, I'm uh, I feel like I'm personally convicted. I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but you, you're convicting me as you're sharing this story because I, you know, you you've seen them. I've been a part of them. I've I've helped. Uh, um, coordinate them and, and lead them. And how many times have we seen, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but, but you bring up such a, uh, a, an important missiological point. How many times have we gone on a spring break or a summer and we, we fly into an airport of, of another country and our, our church group is, is doing mission work there. And we've got t-shirts, matching t-shirts. And there's in line and customs is six other sh- uh, churches 
right. and they've got their matching I mean matching t-shirts and right. and that's not to disparage the work that people do around the world but I'm I'm convicted of these things are going on right now and you said many times the unreached are unreached for a reason and the reason being we're not going to those people how do we how do we convince the body of Christ here that we've got to take on some of these tough people groups and tough places and tough peoples. How, how do we convince people to do that? We, we, the way that we're doing missions in these days, and again, I want us to keep, everybody has to have an introduction. Everybody has to have a starting place. Mm-hmm. But especially when we look at orphans and we look at traffic women and we go on our short-term mission trips, uh, what secular studies are showing, especially about orphans, uh, is that they have been taught that they cannot trust love for longer than two weeks at a time. Mm. And as long as as long as we see that's that's what our team did that was so hard. But I, if they wouldn't do this, I, I wouldn't. We wouldn't let them stay. If they didn't uh, capture as much as they could the names and the stories of the thousands of people that we fed, uh, of the mobile medical clinics that we get, and if they didn't pray over them and pray over them by name, then mm. what difference can can we make? Now, a famine or war zone doesn't offer you a, a lot of options spiritually. So you, but yeah. you take what you you take what the Holy Spirit gives you. And uh, and and uh, people, they're they're starving. They're without water. They have been sexually abused. But the thing is, they are hopeless. And we can be people of hope for that moment. But if we if we just the, the thing that bothered me is that when when let's save this for another thing because I'd like another time to talk about the tens of thousands of dollars that Christians and churches and organizations sent us uh, for years into Somalia from all over the world. And I don't know how they knew about us. I don't know how they found out how to get the money to us, but also what happened to that money when a certain event happened inside of Mogadishu and two Mm. minutes, two months later, uh, all the support we had left and went home. Wow. We've got to commit. We've got to commit to the point that where we have not been for 2000 years, we're not going to turn that around by drive-by shooting. That's exactly right. It's going to take the, it's going to take the, uh, uh, our lives, uh, it's going to take, uh, uh, y- you know, the, the whole thing that drives me on this, Anthony, and I want to make sure I got this in. When I tell stories like this and and hundreds of others, and, and I do this with uh, medical people, like when I have a knee replaced and they come in, in our house and uh, twice a week and, and, and they're believers and we get to tell them why we do what we do and they just stop and they weep and, and, and they, and they're just incredulous and they're, they, they, they want to know what kind of father are we that we would take our kids 
uh, into Africa, though they never lived in Somalia. And, and I would and I just look at them and say, you have children? They say, I have two boys and a girl or this one nurse that I have three girls. I said, if those were your children in that refugee camp or that feeding center or where we did mobile medical clinics or in that children's hospital, what would you want me to do for your daughters? Mm. And I want to do for the world's children and the world's wives and the world's aged, what I would want to be have done for my wife and my children, if for nothing I have done wrong, that we were in that situation. Wow. Wow. That's, it's just incredible. And, and, you know, you, you brought it up early in, in the episode, but you're talking about just this pure devastation, you know, and seeing, seeing just evil unmasked. And, and, um, yeah, I, I think maybe this might be more of a, more of a personal question and maybe it's even more for, for my curiosity's sake, but what are, what are ways that you, um, you dealt with, I know you, you mentioned that you, you had accountability people around you, you brought in counselors to talk through these things and, and, how can how can Christians today, you know, and, and there are plenty of of these kind of places for us to be able to serve and to work in. You know, how do how do Christians today minister to people who have walked through that? You know, we I, I know we particularly in, in our area, we have a lot of refugees coming from places like Syria and and Lebanon, and some of these places just absolutely devastated. Afghanistan is one place, a, a target here uh, by our home, and so how do Christians how do they engage people who are coming from these type of environments that you're ex- you're explaining right now? How do we how do we minister to them even in our own backyard? Because I think that Fra- will help some listeners today. Well, frankly, given the atmosphere and the temperature in our country, uh, uh, foreigners are are disliked, rejected, not wanted. And I'm not just, I'm not getting into the politics of the southern border. I'm just talking about uh, foreigners in general. If they're not European, uh, they're, they're almost afraid at times to be out in public. And, and the fact is, mm. everybody, there's three things we can do for everybody. We, we can ask them, or three or four things, we ask them where they're from. And the first thing they'll do right now in America, look at me with fear in their face. And I hasten to say, oh, where are you from in the Gulf states? Because I can tell. What part of China are mm-hmm. you from? Or South Korea? Because I can tell uh, by the language they were speaking to each other or usually by uh, facial features. Or where are you, you know, mm-hmm. where are you from? And 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 and, and they're going to pull away from me. And I'm going to say, uh uh, are you from East Africa? Are you from uh, 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 West Africa? And, and given, you know, in about 10 situations, I can greet them in their language and, and, and just tell them that I'm so glad that they're here. Uh, ask mm-hmm. them their name. And, 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 and that's something we can all do is, 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 tell, is, is ask them, where are you from? We're glad you're here. Find out the name uh, uh, their names, 
Tell them how glad that you are that they're here and then find some way uh, that uh, uh, either and one of these is more important than the other. Find out a way that you can help them. But more than that, find out a way that you will allow them to help you. Hmm. It's it's yeah. often more important to be the receivers of somebody's grace than it is to be the giver of that grace. And 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 so uh, again, we're going to come back to many many times uh, what we fail to do uh, now that we become so urbanized and uh, so fast paced is is um, is having people over in our home and. Uh, and, and and just having meals with both our neighbors and having meals with with strangers that we've met and and, and make it possible for us to mm-hmm. go get them and take them somewhere or or if they have transportation just bringing them uh, to our home and uh, I am going to have to practice what I preach in a few minutes because we spoke in our local body uh, this past uh, Sunday twice and and. Mm-hmm. One of the families wants us to come over in about 30 minutes and, and, and they're going to have their neighbors over and they want to have a time of, of, uh, of us uh, eating together. And then they're going to have some questions that they want to ask. And so amazing, amazing. I want to go, I want to go and do that because we've been praying for multiple opportunities like that. Mm, that's incredible. And I, and I, I see exactly what you're saying. I hate that we are in a, a place within our cultures where, I've had so many people I've, I've asked where they're from, you know, and, and they don't want to tell you because they don't want people to know they're from a particular flashpoint in a kind of geopolitical stuff around the world. But uh, you're exactly right, Nick. You're exactly right that if we will just open up our homes, open up our dining room tables uh, and just share the, the love and the friendliness of Christ to people who may not have I- experienced that. You know, I'll, I'll say one thing really quick um, for our state. Uh, the statistics I learned last year were that 83% of international students that come to our state for uh, college and university, 83% say that they are never invited into an American home. And so I think what an amazing opportunity we have. You're talking about um, the, the story of this little girl, the devastation, the ultimate brokenness that, that you're experiencing in Somalia at that moment and, and we right now in our backyards have people coming from these places and they are they're Like you said, they're scared to go out. They're scared to tell people where they're from. What if we change that 83% and said, you're welcome in my home. You're welcome in my, my country and in my state. And what if we just started a revival just that way by saying, you're welcome into my, my home. I can't think of a better way. Um, as we were talking about, how do we motivate people to get to these hard places? I can't think of a better way to start than to tell them, you start welcoming the nations into your home right now and see what God does to open up pathways for you to maybe serve in some of these really hard to reach places. Most of the foreigners in our midst come from hospitality cultures and not to be asked in their homes is a clear sign of dislike or something, you know, much stronger Years and years ago, mm. uh, when we were still in the mission field, we met a Saudi student in Virginia, and he was getting ready, finished his degree, getting ready to mm. go back uh, home, and 
we asked him uh, how it was, and it was good, this, that, and the other. And we said, well, anything that uh, you're surprised? He said, yeah, well, I'm taking my six suitcases back with me. I said, what? He said, I'm having to take my six suitcases back with me. I, I said, I don't understand. He said, my parents packed and paid for six suitcases filled with expensive gifts to give to families that had me in their homes while I was in university in America, and I'm taking 100% of it back home. Mm. That's awful. Wow. Well, it, but the thing is, it's an easy fix. Mm. But I, I've got families around us, church families around us. Their kids are playing three sports. Um, they're... Uh, you're about to get in trouble here. I know. <laughs> uh, I, I have been with some of our workers mm. on furlough, as well as people who should be standing in pulpits that that on Sunday morning are taking personal days to take their kids to different sport tournaments. And uh, mm. if if we, Anthony, my fear is not only that we're going to be disobedient to go to Judea and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. My fear is we have stopped going across the street in America to the point that we now have a Christian influence country and not a country that calls itself Christian anymore. Not any mm. report, not any statistics, not any study is America Christian by any classical definition that you might want to use. So uh, let's wow. love people. Let's open our homes and our hearts. But most of all, you know, let's, let's, let's start by taking the time to ask their name. And everybody loves to tell their story. Everybody loves to mm. tell their story. And once you listen to their story, you're going to discover how the almighty God's already working that person's life. And you get to affirm that and add to that. So uh, have a good evening, brother. Mm. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much, Nick. And thank you for your patience for me being many, many minutes late to start recording, but That's all thank right. you for sharing that. And, and uh, we pray that that is a, uh, a motivation this week. Uh, how can God use us to get to some of these toughest places in the world, even if he's opened up our backyard? in our homes to to make that happen and begin that journey. Thank you so much, Nick. Again, I've been your host, Anthony Ball. This has been Witness and Persecution with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. If you would like to find out more information about our ministry, including how to support us, you can go to www.nickripkin.com. Again, to find more information about our ministry, you can go to www.nickripkin.com. Thank you for tuning in today, and we will be with you next time. Thank you so much.